This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We begin by asking for your input. What do the shootings in Baton Rouge, St. Paul, and now Dallas tell you about your community and about our country right now? Share your thinking with us. Email news at CPR.org. That's news at CPR.org. Or comment on our Facebook page, CPR News. We want to know what kinds of conversations these events are sparking in your life. Again, news at CPR.org or CPR News on Facebook. Switching gears now, the damning new report on Britain's decision to join the U.S. and invade Iraq in 2003 got us thinking about the Coloradans who voted for the war, like U.S. Senator Ben Nighthorse Campbell. He served from 1993 to 2005. He is a Republican who switched from the Democratic Party several years into his term. Senator Campbell joined me on the line from Ignacio, Colorado. Senator, thank you for being with us. Glad to do it. This Chilcot report largely looked at Britain's role, but it delivers a verdict on the Iraq war in general. Quote, it left families bereaved and many individuals wounded mentally as well as physically. After a harsh deprivation under Saddam Hussein's regime, the Iraqi people suffered further years of violence. Does this vote haunt you? Well, uh, I don't know if the word haunt fits it, but uh, I have uh, some misgivings about how I voted. But we were voting on the best information we had at the time. I think if there was a weakness early on is that the uh, administration had several people in there really pushing for American involvement, and that was primarily uh, Vice President Cheney and Rumsfeld. Donald Rumsfeld. Donald Rumsfeld. And Colin Powell and Condoleezza Rice, as I remember, were not particularly... uh, uh, supportive of that, but they they lost in that debate within the White House. But we were, you know, in the Senate, we were asked to vote on the best information we had, and uh, I did. In retrospect, after seeing that there was no weapons of mass destruction and that we uh, did not have really good intelligence on the ground to give us some uh, guidance on how we should uh, proceed, I uh, I now look back and think maybe I shouldn't have voted the way I did. So, do you regret the vote? <sighs> In a way, uh, although if we hadn't intervened, I think Saddam Hussein's expansionist plans would have proceeded until sooner or later we may may have been a force to. There was one personal thing that did happen to me, too, that I don't think happened to anybody else. And that was I was visited by um, several members of the Iraq Olympic team. And one was a lady, a very nice lady, very pretty lady, who had been really a track star in her country. And... um, she had been injured, and at the time, the head of the uh, Iraq Olympic team, Olympic committee, was one of uh, Saddam Hussein's sons. I don't remember if it was Kusay or Uday, but one of them was. And he was kind of a sexual predator, as it was pointed out to me. And uh, he, this girl was hurt. She was injured in training and t- tore her Achilles tendon and needed some uh, surgery in the hospital. And he refused to let any doctor repair that torn Achilles tendon, so that was the end of her athletic career. She was still walking a little bit with a limp when I met her in Washington, D.C. And I thought, boy, Tuck, you know, I had been an Olympian myself, been in the Olympic Games of 1964, and had always been close to the Olympic movement. And I think that was one of the personal things that I went through that probably nobody else did. Uh, But some would hear that and say no reason to invade a country. Yeah, that's right. I do want to focus on opposition at the time to the war. In a 2002 speech, the now late Democratic Senator Ted Kennedy said he believed the Bush administration should keep its focus on the threat from al-Qaeda post 
and that turning to Iraq was misguided. He said of the invasion, the administration has not made a convincing case that we face such an imminent threat to our national security that a unilateral preemptive American strike and an immediate war are necessary. So there, there were clearly opponents to the war at the time. What did you yeah. make of their arguments at that time? Well, I, you know, I mean, there was arguments for and arguments again. Ted Kennedy was a very close personal friend of mine, and I thought the world had great respect for him, but we didn't always vote alike. And what did you think of his stance? You know, everybody back there, I think they make their decisions on ongoing information and their own frame of reference from the things they've experienced in life. And, uh, you know, I, I was in a war in Korea. I, didn't, I wasn't right on the front lines because I was an Air Force man. Therefore, we were stationed at a base of about 9 or 10 miles away when the front lines were just north of Seoul. Uh, I think those of us who have been in a war, in a war zone, um, our frame of reference is a little different from those people who were not in a war. And Ted, to my knowledge, knowledge uh, was not. So, you know, you based on your own frame of reference. And at the time, I... Uh, I thought it was the right thing to do. In retrospect, now I'm not so sure it was the right thing to do. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with former U.S. Senator from Colorado, Ben Nighthorse Campbell. Uh, In light of the report that came out of the U.K. about the invasion of Iraq, we're asking Senator Campbell about his vote in 2002 to go ahead with the invasion of Iraq. Did you imagine that the war would go on as long as it has? My God, no. I had no idea it would be this long. And uh, it just seems to go on and on. But frankly, the things that we face now, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and so on, uh, it, to me, it was a, it's a different threat now than we faced then. Because what we're facing now is a enemy that their uh, goals are not territorial as much as they're philosophical. Um, you know, in, in our past wars, including the one I was in, you could recognize the enemy because they wore a different uniform. They were in different formations. They were in different locations. And also, I think the um, abiding by different international treaties and uh, the so-called rules of engagement were set up by the Geneva Convention, they were observed more in those days. Now it's sort of a free-for-all. I mean, we don't know where the enemy is. They're right among us. They've learned how to use our own uh, laws and our own uh, constitution against us as a weapon. They've learned how to infiltrate our country. The FBI says there may be a thousand or more uh, people uh, now in, in the United States who have infiltrated the United States just waiting for the right timing to attack anybody, including women and children, anybody else. So it's a totally different kind of a war now than we were involved in. Do you see the Iraq invasion as having led to, in in full or in part, the rise of, of ISIS and groups that sympathize with it. In other words, I guess fundamentally what I'm asking is, do you think that the world is a safer or less safe place because of the U.S.'s involvement in Iraq? I think it's a less safe place, but not necessarily because of the invasion of Iraq. It was because the uh, announcement by the President Obama about when we were going to pull out, and we did. I think when we pulled out, we left a vacuum that was filled with people that are worse than Saddam Hussein. But I think that's a little different question than whether we, the invasion itself led to what we're facing now with Iraq. When the findings were released in Britain, protesters gathered outside saying that Tony Blair should face a war crimes trial. Can I get your reaction to that? 
and to the folks who think that U.S. leaders, those in the Bush administration, should face similar repercussions? You know, I'm probably not really qualified to answer that. I met Tony Blair on a couple of occasions when he visited the United States and found him a very knowledgeable, very uh, well-spoken, intelligent, I thought a very uh, fine leader. But he, I'm sure he was making decisions the same we were, and that was on all the available information. But uh, I, 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 uh, it's you know, pretty difficult to judge whether uh, the leaders of Great Britain or the United States should have been held accountable in a, in a court or imprisoned or anything else because they, they um, got us involved in Iraq. I, I think they were going by the best available information, too. Intelligence is not an uh, absolute science. And a lot of the intelligence is tinted by who you're talking to or who's giving you the information. So I, I wouldn't uh, go that far to say that American leaders or British leaders should have been imprisoned or tried or anything of that nature. And yet earlier in the conversation, you said specifically of uh, Dick Cheney, the former vice president and yeah. of President Bush, that you sensed that there was uh, a, a great desire to invade Iraq. Do you think that they did that with an agenda or based on pure facts? I think they did it on the information they were receiving. I don't. I have no way of knowing. I knew Dick Cheney well, served with him in the House before he ever became a, a, in, a, in the administration or the vice president, either one. I was in the House Committee of Agriculture and Interior with him both, though, and a neighboring state, Wyoming, Colorado, being neighbors, we had a lot of the common same interests, I suppose, and say agriculture, small business or recreation or so on, you know, public lands in the American West. But uh, I think we probably differed some on our view based on whatever information he had that I didn't have. Senator, before we go, is, is there anything you'd like to add uh, about how you've, you've thought about this? No, I think I've covered the things that are on my mind, except, uh, you know, I've got two grandsons, one's a 17 and one is a 15, and they're growing up in a world that's much more dangerous than the one I grew up in. And frankly, I don't know if there's anything you can go through right now that prepares you for what I think is coming. And that is not only this international um, desire by some of the extremists in the, in the uh, Middle East to change our way of life, but the upheavals we're seeing in America, too, that somehow seem to feed, it, feed in to the same things that the people who want to kill us from overseas are doing. And I, I follow the news pretty, pretty carefully. And I'm, I'm sorry to see America beginning to fall out along ethnic lines and religious lines and, uh, and, and class lines where we're beginning to turn against ourselves. I'm, a, I'm kind of an old guy, you know, I'm in my, my mid-80s. I can remember years and years ago when Premier Khrushchev visited the United States, and I was living in California at the time, and he, after making a tour of the United States, he told the press... You know, we are not going to we're not going to destroy the United States. You're going to destroy yourself. And I swear we seem to be doing it with the infiltration of drugs and all the crime in the streets and everything else that's going on that you're you cover very nicely. I just you know, I pray that the country is gonna get better as my young grandchildren be, go into adulthood. Senator, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Ben Nighthorse-Campbell represented Colorado in the U.S. Senate from 1993 to 2005. We reached out to former Republican Senator Wayne Allard, who also voted for the war, but didn't hear back. We'll continue after a break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Affordable homes are nearly impossible to find in the Denver area. 
And that's not going to change anytime soon. As CPR's Ben Marcus reports, most home builders today can't afford to build cheaper homes, even if they wanted to. Here's a sobering statistic. Fewer than one in 10 homes under construction now in the Denver area will sell for less than $300,000. Developers are putting up fewer affordable homes than ever before. John Covert tracks these things for Metro Study. So a dramatic shift in the spectrum of what we build. Making Denver the most expensive non-coastal housing market in the country. Covert says the average price for a new single-family detached home is more than half a million dollars. By far the highest that it's ever been. And it by far the highest that it was at the previous peak of the market back in 2006. To get a sense of why that is, we visited Jeff Hanlon in Aurora. He's a land developer, standing across the street from a home building project that he helped shepherd. Part of the problem is there aren't a lot of land developers like him left. The people who put in streets, water, and sewer lines before the homes are built. Many were wiped out during the recession. And it's not like there's a rush to get back into the game now. Well, the scars are deep and, you know, their scars are fresh. And so, to be frank, there's a lot of folks that don't want to take a lot of financial risk. Which limits development, further driving down supply. Experts believe Denver is probably only building half the homes it needs to sustain population growth. Still, Hanlon says you can also blame a more arcane culprit for the costly new homes. Local government fees for things like water and sewer. Those costs that are going to be incurred regardless of how big or fancy or well at where it's located, the fixed costs of a house in Denver prevent, for the most part, delivering a home under $300,000 profitably. Meaning the cost is the same for a small home or a big home. So builders are perversely incentivized to build the big home for greater profit. Handelin says that's on top of the fact that labor is tight and wages are going up, and this has become a more desirable locale. Still, if something isn't done to encourage cheaper homes... We'll end up being much more like a Boston or a San Francisco, where realistically the only people that can buy into home ownership are upper middle class or above. All this makes what Pat Hamill does unfortunately unique. He owns Oakwood Homes. The home builder has a warehouse in North Denver that lets him beat the trend and deliver homes for $300,000 and less. 1,500 square feet, brand new, quality construction. In Denver? In Denver. In the city and county of Denver. Are you the only guy offering that product, though? Probably. Here's how it works. Hamill controls costs by building the pieces of his homes in this warehouse. Machines cut the wood super fast and minimize waste, and the pieces are shipped off to the job site for quick assembly. We just work at uh, wringing out all the uh, inefficiencies out of the process so that we can provide a product that people can afford. It also helps that Hamill survived the recession with access to relatively cheap land to build on. But there's another part of the business that adds to the cost of a home labor, or the lack thereof, and Hamill's right-hand man in the warehouse, Jay Small, is eager to show me how they're tackling that. So we just took over this other side of the building. We went from 100,000 square feet to 200,000 square feet. And most of that is empty, except for a two-story framed house. This is where Small is starting an academy to train more workers their way. It's tough. You know, it's tough to find labor today, uh, especially labor that's that's skilled. And that's what we're working on here with this this academy that we're going to build. He says without more skilled workers, the cost of building a home will just keep going up. Whatever the solution to Denver's expensive housing, John Covert with Metro Study says one thing is clear. The demand side of the equation is not going away. Denver is such a great place. It's, people are not going to stop moving here. 
right? Because of our lifestyle, because of our economy. So we better figure it out. Otherwise, the problem is just going to get worse and worse and worse. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. On to another housing story now. Not all the development in Metro Denver is your traditional home or apartment. Several co-housing projects are also taking shape. So people live in their own homes but share meals and socialize in a common space. It reminds Mark Robson of his childhood in small-town Nebraska. All the people in our street in our neighborhood uh, became the moms and the dads. Even the older folks were like a substitute grandparent. And so we felt very safe. Um, We were a community that celebrated birthdays, uh, anniversaries. But we were also a group of people that got together when there was a tragedy that happened and surround people and support them. Robson and his husband Bob Bongiovanni will soon move into a new co-housing development in North Denver called Aria. In an area like Denver Metro, um, you sometimes lose that connection. And so it's really building nice, strong connections with all of your neighbors. According to the Co-Housing Association of America, there are 162 such communities in the United States, with 20 established or forming in Colorado. Engineer Jim Leach is president of Wonderland Hill Development Company in Boulder, which designs co-housing. He's been in the field for more than 40 years, and he joins my colleague Nathan Heffel. Jim, welcome to the program. Thanks for inviting me. So co-housing's been around for decades in the U.S. The oldest uh, one in Colorado was formed in 1992. However, five new co-housing communities are forming across the Front Range right now, uh, with one out in Peonia. All have move-in dates of 2017. In your opinion, why is there this uptick in co-housing in Colorado? Well, I think it has a lot to do with what's been happening with the housing market in general. We went through a pretty long period over the last 10 years when housing was uh, the driving force behind uh, the recession, and a lot of people just couldn't figure out how to purchase new housing. Now the housing market has improved, and uh, people are looking again. Uh, So I think co-housing is just getting its share of that. Co-housing has also been, uh, (laughs) we like to think of it surging uh, upward in in interest uh, over the lifetime that it's been in the United States over the past 30 years. Uh, But it's a slow-moving movement that uh, is kind of the tip of the iceberg uh, in terms of a movement towards uh, greater neighborhood community that really started with uh, new urbanism and some of the pocket neighborhood concepts that have emerged in the last uh, 20 years. And so these communities where people uh, choose to live with each other, um, are, are these communities better suited to, let's say, a suburb as opposed to maybe in the heart of downtown Fort Collins or Boulder or even Denver? Um, are they more suited to less populated areas since they are a group of people coming together to build houses and build a community? No, we, we, we've seen them um, manifest in all, all kinds of uh, situations from very urban. Uh, there's uh, communities in Boston uh, in Cambridge. There's uh, in Oakland, California. So they are in uh, dense urban areas. But the they originally started in the United States as a um, a model to create your own little neighborhood. And ideally, they kind of attracted people that wanted to to create a uh, often create a uh, place that was more rural where they could. Uh, farm part of it and share the experience of, of living together and have have a neighborhood 
tight neighborhood community in a more rural environment. But there, when you look at the number that have been developed, I think only a small percentage have, have really followed that model. The first one we did in Colorado, Nyland, was, was that way. It was on 42 acres in Lafayette. But usually in order to attract enough people, uh, the community needs to be near somewhere that people want to live either because of their jobs or attractive place outside of just the immediate community. So they're not really a rural model. They're more of a uh, suburban and and now an emerging urban model. Jim, traditionally when a co-housing community was planned, a group of like-minded individuals came together, they, they pooled their money, found some land, hired a developer, and then built their homes. However, with ARIA in North Denver, that's not the case. Uh, how are newer co-housing developments different than this traditional model? Well, the traditional model is still prevalent in uh, a lot of places around the United States, but uh, the new models have emerged that are more developer-driven. Actually, a number of the communities we did uh, with Wonderland Hill probably more developer-driven uh, than community-driven. The, the original ones were groups of people that would come to us after they'd formed. They usually had found a site, and then they needed professional help, a, a professional partner. And we developed a model around that, uh, which has been used uh, quite a bit in the United States, and we've done over 20 of them uh, uh, using that kind of partnering model. As we went on, we would find sites that seemed appropriate for uh, co-housing, and we had a database of people that were interested, especially in uh, the Denver-Boulder area. And when we find a site, we'd put the word out and say, we've got a site who's interested and we did kind of a hybrid, put the community together while we were also uh, putting the development together. That uh, system has all different levels of involvement uh, by the community, uh, ranging from the thing I just described to there's one in Oakland where the developer completely designed and put the whole thing together before the community was formed. If we're going to see very much of this kind of development, I think it's going to have to be uh, developer-driven. And that was a good example of, of more of a developer-driven model, uh, but it was we put the community together as we, we did the, uh, uh, the development process, uh, design and approvals and then... Uh, construction. So we had a very strong group of people at the time they moved in. And I think that's what is happening at ARIA right now is they're in the process of, of really solidifying their community. But uh, I worked with them early on uh, with the original pioneers uh, that I, I assume there's still some of them in that community uh, when it was just a vision. Uh, so I don't think even with the exception of that model in uh, Oakland, uh, I think that it's always going to be a uh, type of development that involves the future residents in some way so that they can feel like they've helped uh, create it. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking to Jim Leach of Wonderland Hill Development Company about the increase in co-housing developments along Colorado's Front Range. Jim, what about diversity in these communities, both ethnically and economically, since these are a group of people that choose to live with each other? Um, can anyone just kind of move into these communities or, or do they have to apply? How does that work and does that uh, uh, foster diversity concerns? Well, uh, every community I've worked with, every co-housing community has really strived for as much diversity as possible. 
for a couple of reasons. One, you know, they tend to be, uh, the concept tends to attract people that are, they're looking for community and tolerance and maybe a little more liberal than the average. It also, uh, because it's such a, a limiting model, there's not that many people that are uh, either attracted to it. Just to be able to fill a community in, you need to be as diverse as possible. It, there's a number of uh, you know special interest groups that have tried to use co-housing as a model, and uh, not very many of them have succeeded because what happens, you know, how, it's still housing. People have to want to choose to live in that particular location, uh, you know, and they need to have the economic wherewithal to be able to buy new homes at the market price. So you're dealing with the limitations of the housing market, and then you're you're also limiting it because co-housing is a unique concept that not everybody is going to uh, uh, be willing to pay for or, or want to spend the time on. Now, in terms of real diversity, we've seen very little ethnic and racial diversity, although uh, in the more urban areas we definitely have seen seen some. Uh, but the economic diversity is is what I'm at least most proud of. Uh, Boulder's a poster child for it with our uh, pretty aggressive affordable housing program. All the communities, we've got four communities in Boulder, and all four of them have uh, 30 to 40% uh, permanently affordable housing mixed in with market rate units that go up over, in some cases, over a million dollars. And that economic diversity works well for a couple of reasons. One, just the nature of co-housing tends to attract proactive people that really want to contribute with their neighbors to making the, the their little community work better so no matter you know how, how much wealth you have or where you are economically there's always something you contribute to it and often people at the lower income uh, that can just barely afford the housing uh, contribute the most and are the most appreciated so what breaks it down is people get to know each other well through the process of uh, creating co-housing and forming the community and learning how to make decisions together so that they operate at a, a much deeper level than the typical neighbors will. A lot of the fears that people have uh, being uh, uh, overly integrated uh, go away. Kind of go away. Well, Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for offering to have me on your show. Jim Leach is president of Wonderland Hill Development Company in Boulder. He spoke to my colleague Nathan Heffel about the co-housing trend on the Front Range. Coming up, how one Denver neighborhood wants to preserve its mid-century modern character. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Maybe it's the afterburn of the TV series Mad Men, but mid-century modern design remains hot. And you'll find a lot of it in southeast Denver. Crisana Park has close to 200 mid-mod homes, and it's on its way to becoming the city's first official mid-mod conservation district. Kate Adams has lived here for more than 40 years. She helped rally her neighbors around the designation. I asked her what she loves about these homes. Her dog Sammy barks in the background. The design, the character, the style... All the thought that was put into developing this whole area. What is it about the design that makes you think it's thoughtful? It's open. It's survived 70, almost 70 years, and people still love them. But it comes at a cost. Adam says the house requires a lot of maintenance. The single-pane windows aren't too efficient. 
Well, on Sunday, as part of Denver Design Week, there will be walking tours of Crescenta Park. We got a preview from Annie Levinsky of Historic Denver, standing on the lawn of a home that's for sale on Edison Way. Annie, thanks for meeting us here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And describe the distinctive characteristics of a mid-mod house, the likes of which we're standing in front of. Well, here in Crescenta Park, we do have the California contemporary style of mid-century modern homes, and there are a lot of great distinctive features. You have the post and beam construction, and you see the exposed rafter tails coming out and the the deep overhanging eaves. You have the clear story windows, those windows that are right up under the roof line. Um, On these homes here in, in this neighborhood... You also have a really strong sense that the front is private, um, so you don't have a lot of windows on the front, and you can't always find the front door right away. Uh Um, They were intended to be a little private on the front and then very open in the back. And so in the back side of these homes, they have big windows opening onto private, beautiful yards and patios. You called this the California style, right? Mm -hmm. But we're not in California. How did that happen? Sorry, well, the developer of this um, development, Brad Wolf and his father, were inspired by Joseph Eichler, who was a developer in California, uh, particularly in the Bay Area, but also in the Los Angeles area. And he built and designed about 10,000 homes with architects. Uh, his architects were influenced by Frank Lloyd Wright. And so some of these things that we see here in Crisana Park very much reflect those Eichler-style homes. And the Wright style as well. Yes, and yes, preceded by the Wright style. So they do have that low-slung quality. Um, the interiors have a lot of transparency transparency, a lot of natural materials, um, and light is very important. Now, was that just a creative borrowing? Was that something that the California outfit got money for or what? Uh, You know, I think for the most part, it was a creative borrowing. Uh, There was a local architect involved with the Wolfs who did the development. Um, But if you look at the floor plans, you look at the style, you very heavily see the Eichler influence. So we call these Eichler-esque. Eichler-esque. All right. Um, What do you love about them? You know, I think what is really fascinating about them is the way they're all, there are six different floor plans, but they're all essentially the same floor plan. But just by rotating them on the lots, you create this sense of variability along the street. Interesting. So when I see one house that looks different from the other, it's positioning more than its layout. Exactly. There are a few little features on the models that are different, but primarily it's the same floor plan, just tweaked and shifted all around. And so it was a great economical way to create variety that could be easily mass produced. How many homes are in this particular development? So there are 176 homes in Crescenta Park today. Okay, and the the rough building period was what to what? It was about 1954 to about 1957, 58. Um, so a pretty short period in which all of these homes came up. This is obviously the post-war period. What's happening that these homes are sort of the answer to? So Denver has traditionally had a boom and bust economy, and one of our booms was in the post-war era. We had a huge pent-up demand for housing because during the Depression and World War II, very few homes were built. So as soon as that started to turn around, a lot of the GIs who had come through Colorado to train were moving back here to settle. We had a lot of new um, industries starting up, the aerospace industry. So there was all this demand for housing, and there was nowhere for them to go in the center city. And so for the first time, because of the automobile, people could move away from the streetcar lines and from the old neighborhoods neighborhoods and get into these new areas. And so Crisana Park, like some of the other mid-century subdivisions in the area, became a hot place to come and buy your brand new single-family home. Affordable? Quite affordable. They were intended to be for middle-class families. These houses sold for just over $15,000, and they all had just slightly different tweaks. For example, you could upgrade a little bit and get a dishwasher or maybe a cherry tree. All right. And there are other developments like this around Denver, probably even beyond. I think of Harvey Park, for instance. So there are very similar storylines happening, I mean, really across the country. 
Yes, Harvey Park is another one of our great mid-century developments. A little bit later, just a few years, it too is based on the designs from California developers. So Colorado was certainly mimicking our, our neighbors to the west. Well, all right. You want to preserve the character of Crisana Park. What, where does that name come from, by the way, Crisana Park? Yeah, Crisana is named for the landowners who own this land, which was originally an alfalfa field. So Christian and Anna No were the owners. Oh, uh, Chris and Anna. Crisana. Crisana, exactly. So it was an amalgamation of their names to honor them after the land was sold. And indeed, you want to preserve the character of this neighborhood, creating essentially the city's first mid-century modern conservation district. Is that a fancy way of saying you want to infringe on people's property rights and prevent them from doing what they want with their homes? No, I don't think so. Um, it's really just a strategy for managing the kind of development. Um, in all of those boom and bust periods in Denver, we've always also had a conversation about design quality. Crisana Park was an answer to that in the 1950s about how do we get great design in these neighborhoods during a growth boom. And I think the Conservation Overlay District is just a continuation of that same story. In another boom. In another boom, how do we maintain design quality and accommodate growth? So the Conservation Overlay still allows people to do additions, remodels, all kinds of upgrades that contemporary families like to see. It would limit their height. It does limit the height, uh, but in return for that, it allows a larger um, addition to go on the back of the house than would typically be allowed. So there's some latitude there. It's just to try to craft the zoning to reflect what's here on the ground as opposed to a sort of in-the-box solution that could be applied anywhere in the city. What about scrape-offs? Demolition is allowed in a conservation overlay district, so it does not prohibit that. It just provides a few standards for what it could be replaced with. with replaced with, I see. Or what to do if you are maintaining your home. Yes. Uh, now, could that be uh, something of a, of a burden for, I'm, I'm just thinking of middle or lower middle class families who bought before it was hip to be here. In other words, will there be requirements on on maintenance and things like that 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 could get expensive for someone? No, there are no requirements in a conservation overlay, nor are there in a historic district. That's a misconception people Hmm. often think. There's no requirement to go back and change something that was already done or to do any particular maintenance beyond what you just have to do to make sure your house is safe and habitable according to basic uh, city laws. So no, there's no requirement. Um, And what we have found with conservation overlays and historic districts is that it has a stabilizing effect on property values. And in some cases, they tend to rise slightly faster in those areas than outside of them. So what's the timeline here? I mean, how soon could this be designated? Well, the neighbors and Historic Denver have been working for a couple of years on this project already. Historic Denver uh, first worked on a pattern book for the neighborhood. A pattern book is basically a style book, if you will. A style book that defines what it is that's really special about Crisana Park. And it provides tips for maintenance and renovations. And then the residents here really took the initiative all their own to start the conservation overlay process. And they've been working on it for over a year, making sure that they talk to all the homeowners in the area and make sure everyone understands what it is. So that application is going to be submitted this summer, and then it'll just take a few months to work its way through the city processes. There have been a few detractors who have some concerns, I understand, about property rights. But by and large, there's been neighborhood buy-in? There has. The neighbors have done a really great job talking to all of their neighbors, going door to door. So they have um, 90% on board with doing this overlay. Well, Annie, I want to start where we began. Will you confirm or deny my theory that Mad Men is fueling the interest in mid-mod architecture? 
You know, I think the show Mad Men certainly influenced people falling back in love with these homes. Uh-huh. But at Historic Denver, we really saw this starting to happen before Mad Men came on the air. So we have just on the outskirts of Denver, we have two mid-century neighborhoods, Arapahoe Hills and Arapahoe Acres, that were some of the first in the country to be put on the National Register of Historic Places. So I think the trend was starting, but I, I'm sure that, that Mad Men helped push it along. The fuel to the fire. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Annie Levinsky leads Historic Denver. We met her in Chrisanna Park in southeast Denver, which is full of mid-mod homes. You can take a tour Sunday morning during Denver Design Week. And there are photos from our visit at cprnews.org. Coming up, a Colorado woman whose life story would make a great opera, which is why, in fact, she is the subject of an opera. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. You might not expect Colorado to be the birthplace of a renowned opera, but 60 years ago, the ballad of Baby Doe hit the stage at Central City Opera, and it returns this weekend. CPR's Brad Turner has more. An opera company always hopes for something special when it commissions a new piece. But Pat Pierce, the general and artistic director of Central City Opera, says that when The Ballad of Baby Doe premiered, everything just clicked. And it was an unusual thing to have happen in 1956. Composer Douglas Moore's The Ballad of Baby Doe is Central City Opera's signature production. It takes its story from real figures in Colorado history. There's Horace Tabor, the wealthy mining tycoon. His wife, Augusta, and Baby Doe, the woman who steals Tabor away. So while the opera was a hit when it debuted in 1956, there was a vocal minority who had known the characters in real life. Pierce says they didn't think of Baby Doe as a heroine. Some of the ladies who remembered Augusta and remembered Horace Tabor. There were a lot of Denver society ladies that were not pleased about the fact that this story was being told uh, because it was a bad story as far as they were concerned. A sympathetic take on this uh, this scandalous romance. Exactly. Pierce says part of the show's appeal in 1956 was its setting in the recent past. It opens in the late 19th century. But now he says the story's love triangle probably resonates more today people connect with this story not as a Colorado story but as a love story and that's what's going to keep it being produced uh, long after we're gone in fact there's even a contingent of fans called Doughheads. they travel around the country to see new productions of the opera expect to see a few of them when the anniversary production opens at the Central City Opera House about an hour west of Denver on Saturday The opera paints one picture of Baby Doe, but it's by no means the whole picture. When Horace Tabor's fortunes vanished, he left Baby Doe widowed, penniless, and many said insane. Alone in a small cabin at her husband's matchless mine, she scribbled notes about her daily life and about her tortured dreams. Historian Judy Nolte Temple wrote the book Baby Doe Tabor, The Mad Woman in the Cabin, It reveals a character who cared deeply for her children and who may have had mystic powers. 
We spoke in 2007 about the later chapters of Baby Doe Tabor's life. And there's a shocking picture in my book of how she looked at that time, toothless, perhaps starving, and yet we like to remember her as forever young. Later in life, she would wear, like, mining boots and, and clothes that basically covered her entire figure. She must have been quite a spectacle. And we have photographs of her wearing quite a large crucifix that people said was part of her garb, and then this mysterious bag that she carried. And myths grew up around that. People wondered, was it samples of ore? Was it valuable papers? What could she be guarding? There are images of her on your book jacket, and the gorgeous images on the front and the darker images on the back. That doesn't square with what you th- you say the book's about. No, no. It seems that the more appealing baby doe would lure people into the book. But the woman I'm talking about is the one who becomes that so-called madwoman on the back. Did you fight with your publisher on which to put on the jacket? Well, I don't know if you're aware that most writers don't get to choose the title of their book or have final say on the cover. I really wanted what has become the back cover picture of Baby Doe to be on the front. Your book focuses on Baby Doe's writings from her later years, what she called her dreams and visions. Can you give me an example of a vision that you found compelling? I found visions of people sneaking around her mind, threatening her that she saw as potential demons. And yet I have stories of people that stoned her house, threw pebbles at it, trying to harass the old widow. So maybe what she saw as a vision was actually some kind of transformed reality. And in her latter years, she lives in, I mean, is squalor too strong a word? I mean, in, in, in a shack? Yes, destitute and for the most part self-imposed isolation. We know from her diary that she preferred to go to Leadville at night and that even then she feared demons. I, I don't think she enjoyed being the spectacle. Let's talk about the writings. How did you find out about them? Well, as a naive diary scholar, I had seen in the huge index to the collection that they have at the Colorado Historical Society a listing of diary notes. Behind them were folder after folder of these dreams and visions. And I saw some coding in them, which as a diary scholar I knew meant that there was a secret. And that's how I began my detective work. A secret? What do you mean? Well, often writers who don't have an obvious audience but intend someone to read their work will code. And Baby Doe's coding was very rudimentary. Uh, Vowels were indicated by numbers. So in attempting to hide something, she actually pulls the reader's eye to it. What is she coding? What is she trying to hide? Did you know what the answer was? Well, some of them are names of people that she thought were harming her daughter, Silver. Sometimes she codes Silver's name when she's recording a horrific dream about her, and yet Silver is so easily decoded. Uh, Silver is her daughter who winds up dying a very untimely death. And you think that some of her writings were prescient. Yes, I think that because of the dunning letters she was receiving from her daughter, Silver, about being without food, about having womb problems and miscarriages, that Lizzie, as I call her in my book, really feared for her daughter's fate, and she was right. Lizzie, from her first name, her full name, Elizabeth. I bet there are a lot of people out there who have heard of Baby Doe Tabor, but may not know that her name was Elizabeth. 
Exactly. In fact, when I first gave lectures on baby doe, I would try to avoid that name, and people would immediately say, oh, she means baby doe. Talk about baby doe. Uh, These papers weren't widely known. And why was that? I mean, she's such a popular figure. You know, you'd think people would just be... It took over, over this stuff. 30 years after her death for those papers to be cataloged and organized. But for a good period of that time, they were suppressed by first a judge and then the executor of the estate. And out of taste, because Silver Dollar was quite a wild girl, and she does name names of various friends in the Denver community. And since she was much younger than her mother, those papers were suppressed for quite a while. To this day, the conventional wisdom is that Baby Doe Tabor was crazy. Uh, And the the subtitle of your book, The Mad Woman in the Cabin. Yes, but that refers to a feminist work that says that the mad woman is actually an angry woman who is performing the spectacle to call attention to herself. And what does she get out of that? She gets attention. So even though she has children throwing pebbles at her house, people are also leaving bags of food at her house and not forgetting her. Uh, We have a poignant extract from her dream diary where she says that Mr. Zients, a grocer in Leadville, helps her through the snow and gives her credit that will never be repaid on food. You also explore whether the dreams and visions that she wrote about might be evidence that she was a mystic. I go as far as to say she might have been a rough draft mystic. If you think of her isolated, alone, no audience, no scribes. I think this could be what rough drafts look like. When she was alive, there was a movie that came out. I think it was called Silver Dollar. Is that right? Yes. And it was about her life. Exactly. Very hurtful, had her be a floozy. And yet uh, she didn't sue, as somebody would today. She didn't go on Oprah and tell her side of the story. She was a very private woman, but she was writing with a vengeance. Well, and I wonder if uh, her writing was a way of saying, listen, I know that I'm not going to be able to tell the story I want now, but, you know, there's going to be someone like you, this biographer, who will. The mad scholar? Yeah, the mad scholar. I think that she was less defensive, though. I expected to find her saying no, no, no to all of these stories. When she really constructs a completely different view, a devout Catholic and a woman I call the warrior mother, the mindful mother who so loved her daughters. But if part of the negative image of her was as a floozy, adulterous, marriage breaker and bad mother, then might she not write very earnestly about how she was a good mother day and night, even when she's dreaming? In the end, having this fuller picture of baby Doe Tabor, of Lizzie, Do you like her? Oh, I liked her very much. I tried several times to back away from the papers. I could only read them for a week at a time, and then it's as if you pull away from the person tugging at your sleeve and telling their story over and over. I really empathized with this love and this frustrating family and the lack of of understanding for her. So I very much at the end empathized with her, and that's why I tried to unwrite the easier legend, and tell a different story. So many of us are familiar with the story of Baby Doe Tabor because of the opera. And you write that um, there should be a third act. And just briefly, like, what would that act say? What would it leave us with? 
it would contain some of her most poignant writings about her daughters, about the burying bells of her daughters, where she is perhaps emotionally seeing her daughters move away from her, or the poem that she has about her fiery love being the bridge to them and her dreams being a bridge to them. It's it's the great stuff of opera. And if it's going to be called The Ballad of Baby Doe, let's tell her story and not have Horace die and then she walks away singing Forever Young. Judy, thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Judy Nolte-Temple is author of Baby Doe Tabor, The Mad Woman in the Cabin. We spoke in 2007 when it was released. Again, the 60th anniversary production of The Ballad of Baby Doe opens this weekend at Central City Opera. And just a reminder that we are seeking your insight. What do the shootings in Baton Rouge, St. Paul, and Dallas tell you about your community and about our country right now? Share your thinking with us. Email news at CPR.org. That's news at CPR.org. Or comment on our Facebook page, CPR News. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for being with us.